to this episode of the Jam Base Podcast. I'm Andy Kahn, and today we're introducing a new interview format. We're calling Jerry Stories, welcoming back to the podcast acclaimed bluegrass guitarist Peter Rowe. We reached out to Peter to see if he would share a story about Grateful Dead guitarist Jerry Garcia, and Peter ended up relaying a few fascinating tales of their times together. We'll hear Peter's Jerry Stories right after hearing about the sponsors of this episode. This episode is sponsored by Topeka Live. Topeka connects you with your favorite artists and people through meaningful shared music experiences in Miramar Beach, Florida. Enjoy a new kind of music vacation. Spend days at the beach and nights listening to music in your reserved coves. 2023 vacations include Moon Crush Pink Moon, taking place April 20th through the 23rd. Moon Crush Pink Moon is a music vacation that lets you embrace the sun at the beach, by the pool, or enjoy your favorite activities. Performers include the Black Crows, the Avid Brothers, Jason Isbell, JJ Gray and Mofro, and more. Mothership Weekend is Mother's Day reinvented. Spend Mother's Day at the beach for Brandy Carlisle's Mothership Weekend from May 12th through the 14th. Celebrating the mothers, the impact makers, and the people who love you like a mother, watch performances by Brandy Carlisle, Hosier, Bonnie Raitt, Mavis Staples, Nathaniel Rateliff, and more. Moon Crush Blue Moon goes down from September 1st through the 3rd. Savor the last sweet days of summer at the beach and live your best life with Ben Rector, Need to Breathe, and many others this Labor Day weekend at the inaugural Moon Crush Blue Moon. Visit Topeka.live for details and to purchase tickets to Moon Crush Pink Moon, Mothership Weekend, and Moon Crush Blue Moon today. Delfest is the sponsor of this episode. Delfest is Allegheny County's premier bluegrass festival, celebrating the rich legacy of Del McCurry with some of the best-known names in bluegrass music, all within a family-friendly and distinctly unique atmosphere. Taking place Memorial Day weekend, May 25th through the 28th, and hosted by Del McCurry and family, the 15th annual Delfest welcomes to the stage the Del McCurry Band, the Traveling McCurries, St. Paul and the Broken Bones, Trampled by Turtles, Pigeons Playing Ping Pong, Sam Bush, The Infamous String Dusters, California Honey Drops, Sierra Farrell, Molly Tuttle and Golden Highway, and so many more musical acts playing around the clock for nearly four days. Located along the Potomac River in the scenic Appalachian Mountains, the Allegheny County Fairgrounds in Cumberland, Maryland, serve as the ideal location for Delta. The fairgrounds are conveniently located near four major airports and can be easily reached by rail or road. For more information, including camping, parking, partners, and more, please visit delfest.com and follow Delfest on all social platforms. Spend Memorial Day weekend with the Del McCurry Band at Delfest 2023. Grab your tickets today. Joining me now is Jam Bass' Scott Bernstein, who spoke to Peter Rowan for this Jerry Stories segment. Hey, Scotty. Hey, Kay. It's good to be here. How's it going? I'm doing well, thank you. And I'm glad to have you here for the premiere of our new Jerry Stories interview series. You know, the idea for the project to present stories about Jerry Garcia told by the people who knew him first popped up, I think, last year around what would have been Jerry's 80th birthday. This August 9th will also mark 28 years since his death. And knowing that the love for Jerry will not fade away, we didn't want the memories of the people who knew him to fade away without first being captured for generations to come. So we've been reaching out to people who knew or crossed paths with Jerry Garcia to get their stories about him. And we hope you'll enjoy hearing them as much as we do. One of the first people we reached out to is Peter Rowan, who previously appeared on the podcast last July. Yeah, and this time around, you got to talk to Peter about his relationship with Jerry. That's right. It was an amazing experience to get to hear Peter, who's a real raconteur, talk mostly about Olden in the Way, the legendary bluegrass band that he formed with Jerry in 1973. And as you'll hear on this and other Jerry stories, 
Peter was given the floor, so to speak, uh, to relay his memories as they flowed from one to the next. Exactly. These aren't your our podcast typical Q&A back and forth interviews. Right. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Olden in the Way, which is one of the many projects Peter's been involved in. For anyone out there listening that might not know, who's in that group? Well, Olden in the Way featured Peter on guitar, Jerry on banjo, David Grisman on mandolin, Vassar Clements on fiddle, and John Kahn on bass. But it was a short-lived project because by 1974, the band had essentially dissolved. Yeah, that band was like a shooting star of bluegrass, man. Soaring bright and beautiful, and then gone, just as soon as it appeared. But looking back, it's really incredible how big of an influence Alden in the Way had on what's become the modern jamgrass scene. It's clear from Peter's Jerry stories that the band and his time with Jerry also had a significant impact on him as well. Well, I'm incredibly excited to be premiering Jerry stories on the Jam Bass podcast with Peter Rowan launching the series. Me too. Peter begins segment by talking about Jerry's relationship with Deadheads and what they might not have known about the beloved guitarist. Let's roll into Peter's Jerry stories with a bit of Alden in the Way playing one of Peter's signature songs, Midnight Moonlight. You know, whether it was through the psychic kind of experience with the, you know, whatever substances they were taking or just uh, beholding Jerry in his own joy, you know, because he really liked playing. And, you know, here's another thing, too, is that nobody knows how much pain Jerry was in. Nobody really knows. Uh, he never talked about it. But. I've seen him on stage, especially during that Olden in the Way tour, where he seemed like he's like, oh, it seems angry, uh, or it seemed like the doing of it was creating a, a fire, you know, he's just getting in, into the high energy of the Grateful Dead, which was a, a laid back group, but played with very high energy. I remember seeing him on stage and kind of glaring. In fact, I, was standing behind his his amp and like coming up to say hi, and it was like no, there was no, there's no hi to be said tonight. He was so intent on his work, and I think that what it was is is that you know to stage a show and to put all that together with amplifiers and everything, or even just bluegrass instrument, requires an intense amount of concentration that that the fans never know about. 
And so what they see on stage is the, is Jerry Garcia and all of us in a state of release. It's like, finally, we get to play some music, you know? And I think Jerry was very much like that. The hassle of getting there made his moments of backstage humor and kind of downtime. I mean, you've never seen him kind of relaxed like Jerry Garcia. He really relaxed. And, uh, of course, that's, it was catching, too. It, it, it created a great space for everybody. Um, so I would say, you know, spiritually, in a way, he was the leader because he had been more uh, successful uh, with the Grateful Dead than we had ever been with Earth Opera or Sea Train or Mule Skinner. They were still like offshoots of bluegrass in a way that had their own special place in the history of music. But the the thing that people may not understand is what a release it is to actually be able to play music after all the difficulties of getting there, putting it all together, getting all that equipment together. It's a team effort. And I think that's an interesting side of things that maybe the fans would never see or be able to appreciate because they would walk in the door and just go for the the high of it, whereas the musicians on stage of you know what I mean? They've they're, they're far from home. They're on the road. They've they've had to had their crew haul the stuff around. You got to get the sound right. And but some, one night it's not going to sound good. And why is that? Nobody knows. And uh, maybe it's the hall, or maybe it's the Coliseum. In the case of the dead, um, there's a lot of frustrations, and partly. Uh, a life of a musician is is dealing with the frustrations, but also is getting to that moment when you hit the stage and you're just going to give it away and the energy from the crowd lifts you up. Uh, I think that is something that Jerry really, really lived for because in later years, I saw him on stage and, uh, you know, he was quite exhausted. And by then, he'd gained a lot of weight and and yet he still gave, you know what I mean? It's like uh, Bill Monroe said, you know, when he talked about all these other musics that he heard in his head that he could play, he said he would never do it because he wouldn't let his fans, he didn't want to let his fans down, you know, which was like... If I hear something in my head, I'm gonna, I am going to check it out. You know, uh, I figure the fans can follow. You know, and the dead were, were such an entity and such an interrelated and interdependent uh, phenomena that Jerry had to play his part. And I think Olden and the Way had offered him a, a, for a moment a a a a light filled space to kind of just be in. Remember, he did drive to the East Coast to try out for Bill Monroe. And then, I'm a bluegrass boy, so we came to Jerry, you know? And he was, he was ready and he was, he was doing great.
I came up in musically uh, through the ranks of bluegrass and became a bluegrass boy working with Bill Monroe down in Nashville, Tennessee and playing the Grand Old Opry around the same time that Jerry Garcia drove east with Sandy Rothman and was going to try out and play banjo for Bill Monroe. But uh, Bill could be an imposing character, and I think Jerry had second thoughts in the end. But uh, I met Jerry Garcia in Stinson Beach, California, when my friend David Grisman had uh, been on his, uh, I think it was Working Man's Dead or American Beauty, David had played um, some mandolin for Jerry, and they had become friends. And uh, I'd left a band called Sea Train in about 1970 and come out to the West Coast to basically have a sense of freedom. Uh, the East Coast was uh, a little more uptight, and the West Coast seemed to promise uh, something uh, different. And I... I went through uh, an area of Utah and wrote a song called In the Land of the Navajo. And I had all these tunes in my head, Panama Red, In the Land of the Navajo, Midnight Moonlight, and really no place to go with them musically. Um, the band Sea Train was in a different direction. And I was longing to kind of get back to my roots. And my old partner, David Grisman, was living in Stinson Beach. And we used to get up every morning and pick bluegrass out by the sand dunes all barefoot and drinking coffee in the early morning and uh about the third or fourth day i was there after having driven across the country uh dave grisman said uh, you know jerry garcia lives just up the hill let's go see him uh, david had introduced him to me one time before uh when i was out here seeing out in the west coast seeing my brother so i said oh jerry yeah he's still up there let's go so we went up the hill and uh, Jerry was told, you know, what we were into, just picking a little bit. And he showed up in his front yard uh, <clears throat> with his banjo strapped on. And we just drove right up into the um, driveway and hopped out and took our instruments out right there and just started picking with Jerry outdoors. Uh, before we took the music inside at all, we, we were just having some fun. and. Jerry was, he liked fun <laughs> of all kinds. And so we began, uh, in, every evening we'd get together until Jerry went on, on the road with the Grateful Dead again. Uh, I guess he was in a free space too. And he recorded one of my songs, uh, Mississippi Moon, uh, that I had been doing in Sea Train just a couple of years before. And, uh, then he started to play uh, Midnight Moonlight on his on the live shows, so we had a good relationship of uh, sharing music. I mean, it was like instantaneously fun, and and also very everything was very accepting. It was not like a, a super self critical type of situation, which can happen in groups and bands and this and that, and. Um, uh, David Grisman and I, coming from bluegrass music, were into this tight structure thing, and Jerry gave it a certain buoyancy that I like to call it a, a, a buoyancy, a kind of particular bounce that he had in his uh, playing and his attitude. And so uh, we would uh, 
take out all the old songbooks, all these old bluegrass songbooks, and just go through the repertoire. And we learned and re learned and relearned a lot of songs. And and I brought in Midnight Moonlight and uh, Land of the Navajo, Panama Red, and also a great song, the Hobo song. And these songs, I mean, if you could picture this, I, I was down along the beach and David was up the road about a half a mile. And uh, Jerry was up on the hillside of Mount Tamalpais behind us. So there was this kind of psychic energy that was zipping around. It's also on the fault line, the, the, the California, the fault line of uh, San Andreas fault line. So there was all these rumors that uh, Stinson Beach was going to break off and float away into the ocean. And so while that state of mind was in place, we were getting together playing this really uh, high energy, uh, laid back but high energy bluegrass music. And uh, Jerry just seemed to enjoy himself a whole lot. And uh, yeah, we interestingly enough, when we rehearsed, uh, we were having so much fun. We'd start the tune inside in the living room, and then we'd uh, agree to meet back for the last chorus, which meant you had to be playing in time as you wandered around outside the house. And we'd pass each other. We'd all go in different directions. And as we passed each other, laughing hysterically, you could hear that the other guy was right where you were in the song. And then we'd come back in, be, and since we're all playing the same song, by the time we got to the last verse and chorus, we'd end up back in the house and be totally in time, in tune, in tempo, you know. <laughs> and that was really funny. I mean, we really laughed a lot. But Jerry was in a wonderful state of mind at that time. Grateful Dead had been on a hiatus, been on a bit of a vacation. And Jerry had become friends with my two brothers, Christopher and Lauren, and was really uh, enthusiastic about their music that they were making for Columbia Records. So it was a happy time. And uh, Olden in the Way uh, probably played more music for themselves than ever in touring. Uh, I think we went east one time. We went down to Santa Barbara and had Richard Green of Sea Train uh, and the Bluegrass Boys uh, sit and sit play the show with us. He did, and that was a memorable show. Um, 
but just before we were about to go to Boston for uh, the beginning of our tour, uh, everybody was busy, uh, including John Hartford, who had uh, played with us. I think he played with us in San Francisco on the night that Owsley recorded us and the Chieftains. I think John Hartford was in the in the band for that one show. So it it was like a bit of history uh, at all times. And the most historical figure, of course, became the phone call I made from a piece of paper I had in my pocket uh, from five years before when I was a bluegrass boy with Bill Monroe. We had stopped for what they call, you know, a midnight, they call breakfast, but it's really a one in the morning invitation to come over to a, a, a musician's house and and uh, it's a bluegrass thing that you eat breakfast at one or two in the morning before you drive on through the night. <clears throat> and uh, a fellow named Rule Yarbrough was his, he and his wife hosted us and played us a New Year's Eve jam tapes of Vassar Clements. And I just thought, you know, Vassar had that fire of Scotty Stoneman, but he also had, uh, the, the beauty of a, a Chubby Wise, who was the original bluegrass fiddler in the Bill Miller and the Bluegrass Boys in 1948, and Vassar had learned from him. Uh, I guess Vassar had recorded uh, a sort of a, a hillbilly jazz or something with David Bromberg producing, but that wasn't out, and he was in a free space. And I called him, I said, we're going to Boston. He said, Send me a ticket. <laughs> and uh, we got to Boston. Here's a funny thing, too. You know, in those days, the Grateful Dead were very connected politically with all kinds of interesting people. A lot of deadheads were at the Harvard Law School. And um, somehow they had found uh, some contraband. And uh, I didn't know about this, but we were collecting our bags at Logan Airport and uh, pretty soon all the bags were off. There was this big red, giant red, you know, suitcase still going around. And we were standing there and I noticed Garcia's eyebrows are up and he's got this smile on his face, you know, <laughs> and he goes, I'll take big red. <laughs> and he reaches over and he grabs his suitcase. And when we get to the hotel, we opened it up and it was like, all this contraband from, uh, you know, the Border Patrol or something, but it had wound its way past the evidence room uh, into the hands of uh, some students at Harvard and uh, who were deadheads. I don't know how it happened, but it was one of those funny moments, you know, when the herb was uh, illegal. You know, now, of course, you know, nobody cares. But if that much showed up anywhere, it would raise some eyebrows. But it was funny how Jerry just kind of looked around and casually said, I'll take Big Red. <laughs> and so he hauled that suitcase off the, the uh, baggage carousel. Just a little 
and um, and we toured back east. But uh, the problem was a lot of bluegrass festivals are outdoors. Most of them are. And, uh, and there's a lot of dust and there's a lot of uh, pollen because it's always in the woods and, and everything's always discharging pollen and, uh, you know, allergies are rampant, uh, especially when towards the south, you know, it's very warm and the season is long and, uh, and dusty. And I and and we were playing on off nights of of, of a Grateful Dead tour, and I think the fun part of Olden in the Way was that being up in Marin County and being the only sort of bluegrass band around uh, gave us a, a sense of of uh, we didn't feel isolated because the music was was very very wide open and broad and. But being on the road and exposed to the outer world, it became a little more like work, which that wasn't really what Olden in the Way was about, you know, like hammering the road for a tour or anything like that. It was uh, playing fun dates uh, that weren't hard to get to, like going up the coast to Oregon and playing Ken Kesey's farm, you know. And uh, it was while we were up in the, up playing up in the Oregon, uh, Asleep at the Wheel was the opening act. And of course, they're completely electric bands. And and we began to feel, you know, how are we going to follow that? Be, being out there on stage and nobody at the time knew how to properly uh, do sound for bluegrass. But I have to say, Earl Stanley Owsley III, Bear, was the self-appointed sound man. And he'd be He'd be fiddling with the sound till it, it got reasonable, but not without going through f- several phases of feedback and this and that. If unless we had had a sound check and gotten there real early, which was mm, if it was in San Francisco, but the boarding house, we did get there about four or five in the afternoon. But up at the up visiting Ken Kesey up in uh, up in Oregon. Uh, there wasn't much of a chance to do a sound check and Owsley was doing his best. And so we went out there following the sleep at the wheel, which is, you know, really loud music. And uh, we could, all we're doing is playing through acoustic instruments, you know, banjo, fiddle, mandolin, and bass, uh, and guitar. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say the guitar. Uh, I was playing Jerry's guitar and uh, I saw it a few weeks ago, again, so one of the fans, one of the Deadheads enthusiasts of the Dead music had bought it. Um, and it, strangely enough, it's the, it's the same wood uh, that Billy Strings' uh, 1943 Martin D-28 is. They're only a few serial numbers apart. And they actually sound very much alike, very crisp, very beautiful sound. So I was using Jerry's guitar, and uh, uh, Dave Grisman had his Gibson F5 mandolin, and uh, Jerry had bought a new banjo. It was a little stronger sounding than the one he had started in the group. Uh, John Kahn, of course, playing a big upright bass that we called the Mule, and uh, because it carried everything. And um, and Vassar Clemens playing his French fiddle, and Vassar was in a great groove. And I remember driving by a music store, and there was a big 
poster of the Grateful Dead. <laughs> the pastor looked over. He goes, "Jerry, there's someone in that band looks just like you." <laughs> and uh, but we played a a good show. You know, it, it's just that nobody because rock music had no acoustic uh, moments at the, that time, and you could get uh, different pickups like Barkas and Barry and different people that had these contact mics and stuff like that. Now it's very sophisticated. Um, and so the sound was was really these rock and roll microphones that were meant to take a beating and they weren't really subtle mics at all. To, to get bluegrass right, it almost have to have a recording mics to get the details of the sound. And, you know, then they have to be matched for the room. And now, of course, the in the 21st century, there's such, such sophisticated sound uh, possibilities. But back then, <laughs> in 72 or 73, there wasn't much except all these beat-up old rock and roll mics, you know, the Shures 57s and 58s, you know, that had been like thrown around the stage for years. and uh, But they worked. And you just had to have a lot of confidence. And that I would say about Jerry is that his sense of confidence was was unshakable. He because when we came off stage that night, we were a little bit like, you know, oh God, I couldn't hear. Could you hear? I couldn't hear you. Uh, and it was like because of those things, of course, uh, you know, things can seem off, but. The the best way to approach it is move on, of course. But uh, anyway, we got stuck in a moment there, and I just remember Jerry sitting there glaring at us and saying, no thought. And it was like the air was cleared. And uh, it was a bright moment of Jerry declaring the Zen aphorism of no thought. So that was uh, a high point. Uh, but, you know, in the music world, everything gets sucked into this sort of, you know, conflict between fun and business. And uh, we kept playing. We kept playing for a good long while. But then I think... Uh, you know the the energy wound down and uh it it became time more for Jerry's focus on the grateful dead and uh but I do wish I had you know somehow kept something going for him uh at that time when everybody was starting to move on to other projects you know but we were still in our 20s and you know what did we know uh that olden in the way would become such a famous uh thing at influencing so many people. I've had so many people say they they owe it to that record for their discovery of some of the really ancient tones in bluegrass of the Stanley Brothers and Lonesome Pine Fiddlers and the kind of Appalachian diaspora of the 40s and 50s up into from Kentucky up into Ohio in the Midwest. And it's, then they gave birth to people like Allison Krauss and uh you know, and Bob Dylan is from the upper Midwest, so he was getting some of that acousticity up his way, too. And uh, in the end, it's a, a really a vast circle, like a mandala, you know. And 
you realize that at one point you got you were in the center of the mandala uh, and you you received the blessing from the entire experience you know and and then life goes on and uh i'm just grateful to still be able to you know put music out there for the people and uh still have interest in in the magic of the sounds that are ultimately infinite sounds into our little uh songs and our instruments that's a big inspiration for me And the last time I saw him was uh, over at the a music store in Mill Valley. He walked in with uh, Lesh and, and uh, Bobby Weir. And he was just like the sun. He, that's all I can think of is there was this big, giant ball of light coming out of his chest. And you couldn't be sad, even though the end was near for him. He had, was such a buoyant. I use that word about his banjo playing too buoyant, kind of uplifting. And uh, it, it, you couldn't be sad for a minute when you saw him, even though you'd heard the rumors of him driving <laughs> north in the south lane of Route 101 out here on the highway. I mean, you know, you got to say that was Garcia. You know, he was he was he was outside and he was beyond. And yet he knew the inner uh inner uh, secrets of the different forms of music that influenced him. So um, that's about all I can say is that to, to see him that one last time was a blessing. And I'm glad I, I got to see him because two weeks later he was gone, but you would never have known it because in spite of the physical difficulties he was having at that time, and they were many, the man was like, a, like the sun. That's all I can say. He's shown like the sun.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Jam Based Podcast. If you like what you hear, share it with a friend and let them know they should subscribe to the Jam Based Podcast too. Thanks to Peter Rowan for sharing his memories of Jerry Garcia with us. We hope you like the new Jerry Story series, so be on the lookout for future installments. Thanks to our sponsors, Topeka Live and Delfest. Thanks to Jake Alexander for helping produce this episode. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, stay safe out there and go see live music. <laughs>